Welcome to the Functional Medicine Radio Show with your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, known internationally as the Functional Medicine Doc. Dr. Carrie is committed to helping patients find the root cause of their health problems and fixing the cause with natural treatments so they can feel normal again. Dr. Carrie is the founder of Functional Medicine Ontario and is the author of the hit book, Reclaim Your Energy and Feel Normal Again. Please welcome your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Functional Medicine Radio Show, the only Internet radio show dedicated to giving you real solutions to improve your health. Not only are they real solutions, but they're natural solutions as well, because as you know, the one and only true wealth you have is your health. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, the Functional Medicine Doc, and I'm committed to helping you find the root cause of your health problem, fix the cause with natural treatments so you can feel normal again and live your life to the fullest. Today's topic is chronic pain, chronic fatigue, and neuroinflammation. I'm so very excited about today's show because my special guest is Dr. Jared Younger. Let me tell you a little bit about him. Jared Younger obtained his PhD in experimental psychophysiology at the University of Tennessee. He then completed postdoctoral fellowships in pain medicine and neuroimaging at Arizona State University and Stanford University before joining the faculty at Stanford in 2009. In 2014, he transferred to the University of Alabama at Birmingham, where he currently directs the Neuroinflammation Pain and Fatigue Laboratory. His lab uses neuroimaging, immune monitoring, and clinical trial techniques to develop new diagnostic tests and treatments for pain and fatigue disorders. Jared, thank you so much for being my special guest today on this episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show. Thank you. Very glad to be here. So I think a good place to start for our listeners is just explaining in simple terms, what is neuroinflammation and why do you believe neuroinflammation is responsible for chronic chronic pain and fatigue? Sure. So, you know, for a healthy person, the closest thing I can tell them about what neuroinflammation would feel like is the last time you had a really bad case of the flu. So every time we have a a really severe infection, such as the flu, um, there's a neuroinflammatory component to that. When you think about when you have the flu and you have to lay in the bed all the time or on the couch, um, you hurt all over maybe, you're profoundly fatigued, it's hard to think, it's hard to work, it's hard to plan, you don't feel like doing anything, and you just have this general sense of malaise. The reason you feel that way is because the immune cells in your brain are producing pro-inflammatory chemicals that change the neuronal functioning of the brain and cause those symptoms. So it's not the virus that makes you feel horrible when you have the flu. It's actually your own immune system. So that's an example of a low-level uh, neuroinflammatory event. It's a, you know, it's um, originally an adaptive thing. It, it basically forces you to get into bed, to get in the couch, and to not do anything so your body can use all of its resources to fighting off the infection. If you're running around because you felt fine, you would be diverting resources away from the immune system. So it's adaptive when it works, but we believe in a lot of chronic conditions that neuroinflammatory system has gone awry and it's chronically activated. So it's reacting to something it's not supposed to or there's something in the person's body or something they're being exposed to that keeps activating that system. And then when it's activated for too long of a time, it becomes more harm than good and it actually becomes the problem 
not the solution. And so, you know, when someone has a lot of symptoms that look like flu-like symptoms internally, like the pain, fatigue, cognitive disruption, uh, there's a, a good chance that that involves the activation of that central immune system. So pain, fatigue, cognitive disruption, feeling foggy brain. Yep. Are there any other like really common symptoms of neuroinflammation? So um, depressed mood is absolutely one. Um, and then kind of ahedonia, so lowered rewards, so things just don't seem as rewarding as they should, and lowered motivation is going to be another one. Um, so, yeah, those are the core. I mean, you know, sometimes headaches are very common, and um, sometimes joint pains can come as well. But, yeah, you hit most of the core symptoms of cytokine production in the brain. That sounds like a lot of my patients. Right, <laughs> right. So for a lot of the listeners out there, these symptoms are really quite common. And and so you should start thinking, oh, I might have neuroinflammation. Maybe that's part, part of the reason why I have pain. Maybe that's part of the reason why I have fatigue. Maybe that's part of the reason why I feel so bad. I think you're absolutely correct there. But the, the thing is, and, and I think, you know, where your role is critically important is it may be the case that that all or most of the patients have this neuroinflammatory um, element to their disease, and that maybe that's what's making them feel fatigued and feel pain. But the question is, is what's causing that neuroinflammation to begin with? And I think that varies tremendously from person to person. You know, as scientists, we're trying to figure out fibromyalgia, we're trying to figure out chronic fatigue syndrome, but if we're looking for one cause, I think that's never going to happen. I think it's been the greatest obstacle to the science. They may have neuroinflammation, but you know, some of them may have mold exposures. Some may have a virus or bacteria that's hiding out in their body. Some may have an imbalance in their gut microbiome, and that's causing inflammatory signals to spread and eventually get to the brain. Some of them may be taking medications that are actually activating a central immune system. So, so we may be able to target the neuroinflammation and suppress that, but what would be ideal would be to find the original trigger in the first place, and then you may actually have a cure. I'm all about getting to the root of it. Hmm. That makes total sense to me. So um, in your research, you talk a lot about microglia. So can you explain to our listeners in simple terms, what is a microglia and how does that play a role in neuroinflammation? Yeah, the the microglia cells are really the uh, the culprit. Um, when you're feeling overall pain and you're feeling fatigue, it's probably something to do with the microglia. They are incredible immune cells. They're really amazing. So, you know, in our body, we have a bunch of immune cells. We have T cells and B cells and T helper cells, and a lot of things that have specialized roles. The situation is very different in the brain. In the brain, we have microglia, and they have to do everything. And they are responsible for protecting the brain from everything, bacterial, viral, from cancers, from uh, cell death. They have to clean up the debris. They have to clean up synapses. They do everything. So it's it's a really remarkable type of cell. And you can actually see them if you've got the proper imaging equipment. They can ch- drastically change shape in just a few seconds. So they normally have these um, kind of long arms or processes and they're moving around. It's a little creepy to think about, but they move around your brain and they're waving these arms just looking for any kind of problem. And as soon as they find a problem, they snap those arms back into the cell and then they become very circular and they start to pump out a bunch of chemicals to combat that uh, problem. Um, 
when they take that circular shape and they start to pump out all those chemicals, that's when you feel bad. That's part of the process. And again, it's by design. So that's how it's supposed to work. They're looking for problems. They find a problem. They become pro-inflammatory. They release chemicals that make you feel bad but also combat the problem. And when the problem is gone, they extend the arms again and they stop putting out those chemicals and they go back to normal and they go back to looking for problems. The issue is we've discovered that they can become hypersensitized and they can become what we call primed. And that is when they've been insulted so much. Maybe they've run across too many infections too close together or maybe uh, the person's exposed to some weird environmental toxins. And when they're hypersensitized, they go into a uh, a hair trigger state and they you can actually see the difference they put out more arms and more receptors and they're hypersensitive and in that state it takes very very little to make them become fully activated and so we think in a lot of these chronic pain and chronic fatigue conditions the individual's microglia are in this kind of angry hypersensitive state and so every little thing the person does just going for a walk you know, for a few minutes may produce cortisol or beta endorphins that would normally make you feel good, but now that may activate the microglia. And so we're really interested in how do you take those microglia and put them back into their normal resting state? Um, And we think that may be the answer to a lot of these conditions. Okay, so again, the microglia is the immune system within the brain. Right. And that the microglia can become hypersensitive or chronically activated. And yes. contribute to neuroinflammation, chronic pain, chronic f- fatigue. I would also think um, cognitive um, issues, maybe Absolutely. even um, cognitive decline, autoimmune within the brain, things like that. Yeah, it's very easy. You know, we this this is experiment. This is provable because we can uh, we can take a healthy individual and we can inject them with something called lipopolysaccharide, and that gets into the brain. It, it's not an inf- it's from a bacteria, but it tricks the immune system into thinking there's an infection, which causes them those microglia to go into their activated state and produce the chemicals. If I take a <clears throat> excuse me a healthy person and inject them with lipopolysaccharide and activate the microglia, that person will start to feel depressed, they will get very tired, they will have pain sensitivity, and like you mentioned, their cognition will just bottom out. They will have uh, a very difficult time doing even basic kind of cognitive tasks, and that's very easily replicable in the lab. So we know that's a true process, and we know that cognition and planning and thinking and memory is impacted by the immune system in the brain. So lipopolysaccharides, or LPS, are bits and pieces of bacteria, fragments traveling within your body and if that gets in the, into the brain that that can help trigger all of this neuroinflammation that's right and so you're kind of making me think about how we go back to in functional medicine we talk a lot about gut health and how the gut impacts the brain and how the brain impacts the gut and looking for chronic underlying infections um, to help treat brain issues to help treat chronic pain fatigue and whatnot yeah, I think the gut is, and, and the gut is not uh, one of my areas of expertise, but I know enough about neuroinflammation to know that there is, even in classic science, uh, um, increasingly I think in kind of conventional medicine, um, 
there's more appreciation about the role of the gut. I mean, that's really the starting point and probably the place where people have the most control over what their body's going to do. If there is an imbalance, and, and you know this more than I do actually, but if there's an imbalance in the types of bacteria that's in the gut, it can very easily set up a local inflammatory condition. And then if that process persists for too long, those elements of inflammation, including LPS and other things, can leak outside the gut. And inflammation, I think, has a way of migrating. If if it's not um, taken care of properly, it could be inflammation in the gums. We know that gum inflammation can become heart inflammation. Um, so there's a spread there. You may have inflammation in your knee, and if that's not taken care of, that may gradually migrate and it can eventually uh, penetrate the blood-brain barrier and become a neuroinflammatory condition. So whether it's a gut thing or something else, I think it's really, really important to not let peripheral neuroinflammatory things or gut neuroinflammatory, I'm sorry, gut inflammatory things to persist for too long um, because I think over time they can spread kind of like a wildfire and become harder to treat later on. Okay, so then how do we diagnose clinically neuroinflammation? Uh, We don't. Uh, unfortunately, um, and this is the big part of why I'm doing this research, there is no, th- there's nothing you can go to your physician with and say, I think I, I have this neuroinflammatory condition. Um, can you show whether or not this is the case? And that's the big problem. There's, there's no medically accepted test to look at this. Now, there are tests for really severe, super, super severe uh, neuroinflammatory uh, states. So if you have like bacterial meningitis, like a really bad infection that involves your brain, um, or if you have some uh, neurodegenerative disorders, then we can take, we can do lumbar punctures and we can find some chemicals that happen when your blood brain barrier breaks down or your brain breaks down. So you can detect that, but that's not what we're talking about with chronic pain fatigue. It's, it's more of a low level inflammatory event and there's no scan. So that's actually what we're trying to do. Uh, one of the major purposes of my lab is to develop brain imaging techniques that will um, allow physicians and clinicians to diagnose neuroinflammation. And um, there's a, a lot of different ways we're trying to do that. We can, we can talk about those. But just one example is um, we're finding that with neuroinflammation, just like in your body, if you have inflammation, there's heat involved. So if you have inflammation in your finger, uh, that area will be hotter than the finger on your other hand, which doesn't have inflammation. It seems to be the case that uh, when the brain is inflamed, there's an increase of heat, and that's because that immune system is is using up a lot of energy, and it's generating heat. And normally our blood from our body cools off the brain, but if the heat's too much, it can't be cooled off. And so we have a brain, uh, an imaging technique now that uses MRI we can put someone in the scanner and we can measure the temperature of their entire brain in about 20 minutes without inserting any probes or anything. Um, and that's a really, really interesting technique because we're finding that if someone has traumatic brain injury or if someone has a chronic fatigue syndrome, um, we're finding that they have elevated heat um, in certain parts of their brain that we think is representative of the neuroinflammation. We still have to prove that, but that's just an example of what we're working on. Just like you know, you can put in a thermometer in your mouth to see if you have an infection in your body because of the heat. We think we can do the same thing in the brain. So that's one thing that we're trying to do to diagnose neuroinflammation. That'll be really interesting to have a simple test that can be used in uh, you know conventional medical you know setting. Yeah to diagnose neuroinflammation. So really at this point, it's, it's really about um, having, that, um, having that suspicion 
that neuroinflammation is probably there. So again, the symptoms being chronic pain, fatigue, um, cognitive issues, um, lack of motivation, lack of drive. Uh, you mentioned mood. Um, mm -hmm. were, am I missing any there from a symptom perspective? I th you, you've definitely got the core ones. And then, and then thinking beyond that, kind of like globally, you know, everything in the body is connected. Okay, what else is going on that could be impacting um, neuroinflammation? As you said, chronic infections, mold, um, history of uh, concussion. Uh, there's so many, but but basically, right. it's like it's like an expedition. It's like you got to put on your detective's hat to try and figure it out. Right. Uh, one of the, um, you know, that, like that you mentioned that because w one of the things we do in the lab is we, we allow, we give people uh, like an Android phone or, or whatever, just a, or a tablet, and we allow them to track their symptoms every day for long periods of time. And when, when someone does that, what they see is that they don't have the same level of pain and fatigue every day. There's fluctuations, and some days are better than other days. And so when you graph that out, and I encourage anyone to do that, just track your, you know, pick your worst symptom, like just say if it's fatigue, and rate it on a scale from 0 to 100. There's online tools that will do this for you, and do that for about three months. And then graph it out and look at the fluctuations and see, in some people it's a cyclical thing, like every five days it gets worse or better. Some people it's faster and some people slower, but in almost every case there are some pretty significant changes from day to day or over across a few days. And the question is, if your fatigue is changing, why? Because if you can figure that out, you may be finding the target. Like maybe your fatigue is getting worse every day that you drink milk and I'm just completely making up stuff and don't get enough sleep or something. Um, that may be hard to know unless you're tracking your symptoms. And so we're really big fans of tracking symptoms. And then what we do in the lab is we draw blood longitudinally as well and we try to find what in the blood moves up and down with their increases and decreases of fatigue and we've had really good success being able to determine if someone has a metabolic disorder or an inflammatory disorder just by tracking the things in the blood that move with the fatigue that's hard for people to do that at home but maybe by tracking symptoms they could f see some kind of pattern and fit something together like oh now i see you know it's it's every time i do this or you know, it's some other factor. Okay, so for the patients out there, they, they really just want to feel better. So basically, if we can figure out some kind of a medication or a supplement that would help with inflammation or specifically neuroinflammation and would help with immune system overactivation, specifically of the microglia, mm -hmm. what would that look like? Do we have there, a medication like that? Yeah, good question. Um, we do not have any medication specifically designed to do that. And that is the cutting edge of science right now. There are dozens of laboratories trying to do exactly what you just said, which is to develop drugs that go directly to the immune cells in the brain, go directly to the microglia, and it pushes them back into their normal state. There are a lot of successful agents that have been used in animal models. None of those, to my knowledge, has been moved into clinical trials in humans yet. So they're still doing the safety testing. In the meantime, there are drugs that um, were not designed to treat neuroinflammation, but it just so happens that they do. Um, one of the big ones you, you 
probably heard about or talked about is low-dosenol trexone. And low-dosenol trexone was never designed to treat neuroinflammation, but we know through many, many, many studies that it does go to the microglia and push them back to their normal state, their, their anti-inflammatory state. So, you know, naltrexone is a drug that you usually think of for uh, opioid addiction. So if you take a really high dose of naltrexone, um, it'll block uh, opioids. So if someone was injecting heroin and they had naltrexone in their system, they wouldn't get the effect of the heroin. So it's, it combats the abuse. Um, that's not what we're using it for. If you give it at a really low dose, um, instead of 50 milligrams, you give it more around 4.5 milligrams. It doesn't, it's not strong enough to block the opioid system, um, but it still knocks down those microglia because they're sensitized. And so we found that lotus naltrexone works really well for fibromyalgia, and we think it's working by reducing that neuroinflammation. Um, we haven't tried it in chronic fatigue syndrome yet, but we're, we're planning on doing that. So lotus naltrexone, I'm not saying it's a panacea or anything, but that's an example of something that was, after it was released, subsequently found to reduce neuroinflammation. And there's other drugs. Dextromethorphan is something we're looking at, uh, minocycline. Um, there, there's probably a couple dozen drugs that could work. They just We need to put them through the clinical trials. In the meantime, supplements, um, several supplements have um, shown promise in reducing inflammation. Um, you know, you've, you probably have talked about or used curcumin, um, stinging nettle, resveratrol, um, fisetin, lutein, quercetin. There's a huge list of things that um, either in the test tubes or, you know, in um, animal testing, which, which I don't do animal testing, but I read the literature from other groups, have found that these supplements reduce microglia inflammation. Uh, we just completed a clinical trial um, last week in people with Gulf War illness. These are people who looks like they were exposed to toxins when they were in the Gulf War, and now they have fibromyalgia-like symptoms. We've just tested nine different supplements in one clinical trial. It's never been done before, and it was involving some of the ones I just mentioned. Now, I haven't been able to analyze the data yet, but you know, probably in two months, we're going to know if any of these nine were successful in treating the pain and fatigue. So uh, you know, as soon as we have that information, we'll get it out. Well, I'm really excited about that. Cool. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it was a long, wow. yeah, it's a long project, and no one, like I said, usually you test one or two things, and we found a way to, to test nine things in a single clinical trial, and people were in it for such a long time because they tried multiple supplements one after another, and so we're really thankful for all the, um, you know, the patients who came in and volunteered for such a long time, and we we hope we found something that helps because people could use it right now. You know, you don't have to yes, wait yes. for uh, FDA trials and all that. Yeah, and I know in my own private practice, I've used really heavy doses of curcumin and lots of flavonoids and yeah. um, and uh, and whatnot um, to try and have an impact on this neuroinflammation. And, and you do have to use really high doses, mm-hmm. and, and and that's where I think okay, low dose naltrexone that that could really be a viable option for a lot of people, but. I, I find that clinically a lot of my patients, they'll approach their family doctor and their family doctor either won't know about low-dose naltrexone and won't even go there because it's not part of the standard of care. Right. Um, or, they, or they've you know heard about it, but they just think about low-dose naltrexone is the same as high-dose naltrexone and, and it's a totally different beast. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, giving uh, someone with chronic fatigue syndrome or fibromyalgia 
the typical dose of naltrexone will probably make them feel worse, uh, not better, because it'll wipe out their opioid system, which is at least working a little bit to make them feel better. So, uh, yeah, it's unfortunate, um, but it is understandable. I mean, you know, um, uh, conventionally trained physicians are are going to be conservative. They're looking out for safety, and the fact is, is that. The trials, most of which have been done my, by myself, they're just too small to reach that level of information that clinicians need to feel really, really confident. They want to see trials in thousands of people, to be sure, and we're doing trials in maybe 30, 40, 50 people, um, just, just so it works. But So I understand it, and you know, people can, can try to find, you can go to pubmed.gov, and you can download my articles. I make them freely available um, to everybody, you don't have to be in a medical library to get them. And you can take those papers and say, hey, just look at this. You know, they they, they looked at all the safety stuff. It looks okay. Can we uh, try this? Because, you know, lotus naltrexone is a really, really good side effect profile. Most people find it as tolerable to take as placebo. They can't tell the difference in terms of, you know, negative side effects. So it's it's a nice one to try for at least three months to see if it works. But, um, yeah, you've got to get a physician on board, and that can definitely be tricky. And then another th- another kind of hint that I've given my patients, well, I, I work with a nurse practitioner within my office that I consult with, and she can prescribe low-dose naltrexone for patients. Mm-hmm. Um, but for people that aren't in my office, um, for those of you out there, you can go to your local compounding pharmacy or call your local compounding pharmacy, talk to the pharmacist, and ask them, what doctors in my area prescribe low-dose naltrexone? And then hopefully you can get a referral that way. That's a good point. Yeah, and there's a lot of uh, online communities that help people. Uh, this is a big problem in the U.S. and a huge problem in the U.K. as well, where it's even harder to get. And so people have come up with a lot of ways to get that. Um, you did bring up a good point. It's, it, we, we have to note that there is no commercial low-dose naltrexone product. You can't get a... 3 milligram, 4.5 milligram, 5 milligram naltrexone tablet. Now, there are two companies working on that. I don't know where they're at with that. But in the meantime, it does have to come through a compounding pharmacy because they have to make up that dosage and put it in a capsule. Now, most major cities, even medium-sized cities, will have at least one compounding pharmacy. So that's not that hard to do usually. So, Jared, with all the research that you're doing, um, are there any suggestions that you can make uh, that people can start doing now to help reduce their neuroinflammation? Yeah. Um, so what we're typically doing, we, we're, we're kind of, we're usually on the cutting edge of, of science and we're doing things that are brand new and, and so they have to be tested. And most of the things we do get passed on if it looks good to clinicians. We're trying to provide tools for clinicians because they're usually, they're going to involve medications or it's going to involve kind of advanced neuroimaging stuff. So, um, I think soon we may have things, uh, I think a good example is the botanical trial. You know, we're testing these things. Any one of those can be accessible to people right now. So what I will do is when I run those analyses and if I find, for example, if I found curcumin worked really, really well, then of course I'm going to publish that information and I'm also going to make that available on uh, YouTube videos and, uh, and other sources of information and people can use that immediately if they feel safe doing that. So I think um, I think the two main things from our research we, we've kind of touched on, which is that idea of tracking your symptoms to try to find some kind of pattern or some kind of trigger, um, which is something you may have your patients do anyway, and then um, really keeping an eye out for um, 
potential botanicals. And so, I, you know, if anybody can go to PubMed.gov and read all the articles that I use myself. Um, some of them are very technical, but, you know, just put in your symptoms and put in supplements or botanical, and you can see if a study came out in the last month that may have something interesting for you to try. Jared, is there anything else that you think is important for our listeners to know about neuroinflammation? Is there any area that we did not get a chance to talk about? Yeah. Uh, a, do you, do a you have another that, hour, Jared? Sure, right, right. Um, let me th- try to think of the most, you know, I guess, um, yeah, there's a lot of directions we could take this, but I think one thing I want to mention is um, as, as absolutely horrible and devastating as a neuroinflammatory condition can be. I mean, I, I completely understand that while that is raging, um, it is next to impossible sometimes to do anything at all and people lose their business or they can't go to school. Despite all that, as much as we look in the brain, we can find no evidence that anything is being destroyed. It does, the neurons look intact, the synapses look intact. Um, we do not see that there is long-lasting damage. And so the reason I say that is because I really believe that once we get a handle on suppressing the neuroinflammation, there's a very good chance that these people have been suffering for years can go back to feeling normal. It's not that their brain has been broken somehow. So I think that's, I just want to say that because that really looks like it's the case. And I think that's a, a promising message that, um, you know, there is a chance to get back to normal. Yeah, that's very promising and very hopeful. So I'm so glad that you explained that. Jared, how can our listeners find out more about you? Yeah, so I try to I try my best to put out stuff um, regularly. Um, really, um, Facebook and, and YouTube are the best way. So I do videos occasionally for just stuff from our lab. Um, I don't have the uh, uh, specific address, but we're really easy to find. If you put in, uh, if you go to YouTube and you put in Younger Lab or Neuroinflammation Pain and Fatigue Lab, I'll pop right out. And then if you're in Facebook, just put in Neuroinflammation Pain and Fatigue Lab. And if people want to follow what we're doing, I try to like put out stuff a couple times a week. And any time we find something interesting I can talk about, I'll throw it out there. So it's a really good way to see, to be up to date with what we're doing. So for the listeners out there, I will find those links and put mm-hmm. those in the podcast notes so that you can easily find those resources. Jared, thank you so much for being my special guest today. This has really been an awesome interview. Great. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. All right. That wraps up this very special episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show with Dr. Jared Younger. And I want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in today. And I'd like to invite you back next time for another episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, the Functional Medicine Doc. Have a great week, everyone. You've been listening to the Functional Medicine Radio Show with your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, known internationally as the Functional Medicine Doc. Dr. Carey is committed to helping patients find the root cause of their health problems and fixing the cause with natural treatments so they can feel normal again. Dr. Carey is the founder of Functional Medicine Ontario and is the author of the hit book, Reclaim Your Energy and Feel Normal Again. Please tell your friends about the Functional Medicine Radio Show, and we'll see you next week with more from Dr. Carey.